So we're going to continue in, in that series, Journey to the Cross. And if you're new here today, or if you haven't been uh, involved in this series, we've been really taking a look at the last days, or, or namely the last 24 hours of Jesus before the cross. And the cross, as we've said, was no surprise to Jesus. He knew it was coming. It's why he was born into the world. And now it's kind of that final countdown for him. And uh, where we left off last week was this overnight trial with the priests, that they arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane, that they took him into the house of Caiaphas, and from top to bottom is kind of this sham trial uh, that convicted Jesus ultimately of blasphemy, even though he, he hadn't actually blasphemed. And, and now, uh, t- today we're going to be picking up with that in the trial before uh, Pilate, which is really the, the true trial in this. This is what the, the, uh, would determine whether he would live or die, was, was the trial before Pilate. But today is Palm Sunday, and in the story, Palm Sunday would have happened five days prior, uh, and that's where we're going to see kind of a two-part series today, as, as a before and an after, that Jesus came into Jerusalem uh, triumphal. He was celebrated and, and lauded as king and praised, and then now fast forward to Good Friday morning, and he's having crowds shout, crucify him, and they wanted him extinguished. And we see that the popular opinion of Jesus had changed drastically. And it makes you wonder, what really happened between Palm Sunday and Good Friday? Why is such a change and such a contrast? And we'll see today that it had a lot to do with the expectations of the people and the choices they would make with the information they had. And we know that popular opinion can change drastically. We see that today in our day and age. But through all of that, Jesus remains the same. His mission remained the same, and his journey continued regardless of the response of the people. So we're going to split this up in in two uh, parts today. Uh, First, we're going to read just the tail end of that Palm Sunday account in in the Matthew Gospel. So if you turn to Matthew 27, we're going to read just verses 6 through... Uh, Sorry, Matthew 21, we'll read verses 6 through 11. So the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so you see pretty clearly the atmosphere that's set here. People are raising up Jesus as this king. They're praising him and they're, they're glorifying him with the words, but we understand as we look at this story in context that there's really two plans going on. There's God's plan. There's the plan of Jesus to come as king and present himself in that way, and the plan of the people, which maybe had mixed expectations of what Jesus came to do. And so we look at this triumphal entry account. This is me kind of just a, a Cliff Notes version for you guys. I know many of you are familiar with this. Some of you may not be, so I'll just give you the overarching points here. 
is that Jesus came into Jerusalem in this moment to make a statement. This is shortly after he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and there were many miracles that Jesus had performed over the years that had people asking, who is this guy? Could this be the Messiah? All the way back to John chapter 6, when he had the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, people saw this sign. They began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And it also says that Jesus knew that they intended to come and make him king by force, so he withdrew himself to the mountains. Jesus had been walking this interesting balance, this, this tension his whole life. He knew who he was. He shared a lot of this information with those closest to him, but he knew his time had not yet come, and so he would often withdraw. He would tell people not to explain to others what he had done. And in many ways, in a public sense, he kept his identity a secret. And now, on the heels, as I said, of this great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, many in this area were buzzing about this Jesus guy and asking, could this be the Messiah? I bet this, I bet Jesus is the Messiah. And so when Jesus chose to ride right into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, that was, in that culture, a great statement. And it's his way of essentially saying, I am the Messiah. I am the King. He did not hide it anymore, but maybe what they missed was how he came into Jerusalem. He was not riding on the back of a war horse, as a king would, who was victorious from battle, but he came in riding as on a donkey, which is a sign of peace. He was the king, but he was coming not to fight, especially not to fight these Romans who had oppressed these Jews and took their land, but he came in peace and gentleness. He presented himself as the Messiah, but potentially not as the Messiah they assumed him to be or they would like him to be. It's clear that he came not for war, but for peace to make the greatest peace in this world, which is the peace between man and God. But here we see really a threefold reaction from the people who are lining this, the, the road to Jerusalem, who are shouting these praises to him, is that they accepted that. They received Jesus as king, but potentially with mixed expectations. And this is where we knew that not even the disciples understood what Jesus was doing. They didn't understand it even until after they saw him resurrected. That's when things started to click for them. So it's likely that many of these people didn't understand the true mission of Jesus. They called him king, but what did they mean by that? Did they understand what kind of king he came to be? And so they laid their cloaks down on the road for him, which was kind of like laying down the royal carpet. And he came with two main ideas. And the first was respect for an earthly king. And that was the cultural custom, is that when a king came into town, the people, the subjects, would lay their cloaks down as a sign of respect for them. But also, they proclaimed him as the Messiah, because the word cloaks that's used here can also mean prayer shawl. And the prayer shawl was used by these Jews for many reasons, but it had many promises of God written on their prayer shawl, so they remembered all that God came to do. And the most prolific promise was written around the collar of these shawls, which said, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And that was that, that daily reminder for them that Jesus, or that, the, that God would send someone like Jesus, send the Messiah to be the Lord of Lord 
in the King of Kings. When they're laying this down, they're essentially saying, we no longer have to wait. We no longer have to look. Jesus is the Messiah. But what kind of freedom were they looking for? What were they looking for Jesus to, to save them from? And that's where we see they shouted these praises to Jesus of Hosanna, which, which means save us. Save us. But with differing sentiments. What were they asking Jesus to save them from? They recognized that he's special and unique, that he would have a title like Messiah as the son of David. They're expecting him to come into Jerusalem to take the throne of David, at least some of them. That they welcomed him as a traveler. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they understood that he was special. Hosanna in the highest, which is the greatest title, would be from the highest. They took it up another notch. They knew he was special, and they praised him, but did they understand what he came to do? And see, this morning when we sing Hosanna, when we sing Lord save us, we know exactly what Jesus is saving us from. We know why he came. But I think this crowd is potentially mixed, that some maybe understood it, but there are others who didn't. They misunderstood what kind of king Jesus was coming to be. And the third part of the triumphal entry is that they knew he was special, as we just said, but with limited understanding. Did they really know why Jesus was special and what he came to do? And kind of hidden in plain sight is some pretty clear indication in verse 11. That the crowds, when they identified Jesus, called him the prophet. Not a prophet, but the prophet from Nazareth. Like me. Now remember, this is Moses speaking to the people. Raise up a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to them. So you wonder here if calling Jesus the prophet, the one that's fulfilling this prophecy of Moses, are they thinking that Jesus, who's coming on the Passover, which is a commemoration of Moses releasing the Israelites from Egypt, is Jesus now the new Moses that will release the Israelites from Rome? It's hard to know. It's really hard to know what's going on in their heads, but one thing we see consistently throughout the scriptures is that not many people understood what Jesus was coming to do. God has his plan. The people have their plan. And there seems to be some tension between the two. Their expectations of Jesus may be blurred. But there's certainly some who praised him with true and genuine hearts. And I think what we're going to see here, as we look at the contrast between these two stories, is the role popular opinion can have in a person's heart, even with the best intentions. You may say you love and you know Jesus and you believe in all he has for you, but sometimes you can let popular opinion or mob hysteria overtake you. And that's where, as Christians, we need to know the true Jesus. We need to know his true mission and his true kingdom to not be overtaken by those kinds of influence. And so now we fast forward. Really, where we we left off last week, that these priests had their trial. They came up with some charges for the outcome they had determined from the beginning. They wanted Jesus dead. The problem is they couldn't kill Jesus. They had to bring him to the Romans because the Romans had all authority over capital trials. 
So at the beginning of chapter 27, we see that the, uh, the priests, this is now in the wee hours of the morning, the chief priests and the elders made their plans of how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him. They led him uh, away to the governor and handed him over to Pilate. And that's where we pick up here today, that this is the real trial of Jesus. What was at stake with the priests was, was his reputation, but what's at stake with Pilate is his very life. And this trial now would not be done in secret in the basement of the high priest, but now in public in front of the people. And so we're going to read now that trial together, uh, Matthew 27. This is verses 11 through 26. So meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah. For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for, for, for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of these two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now we see in this story that there's quite the difference of where we left off. And these again are just five days apart. That the crowds were following Jesus, shouting praises and acclamations. And now the crowds are surrounding Jesus and shouting crucify him. We see that everyone has choices in this world. And the way you choose to respond to things says a lot about you. And, and here we first see the choice of Jesus in this matter, that once again he was silent to these charges, that he chose the path of silence and suffering and obedience to God's will even when he was an innocent man. Now, what's made clear is that Jesus is given every opportunity to defend himself. If he wasn't before with the priests, he certainly is now, because one of the values of Romans, especially in this setting, was that justice 
would prevail. And so the Roman officials were, were required to give three opportunities, at least three opportunities, for the defendant to defend themselves, especially before a death penalty. What we don't know is the exact charges that were given from priest, the priest to Pilate. And it, it's kind of made clear that Pilate is trying to figure out what's going on here, trying to figure out who Jesus is, what he actually did, and why he deserves the death penalty. And it's kind of expounded a bit more. This is one of those examples where it's important to read all the Gospels in harmony with one another. This account is in all four Gospels, but particularly in the book of John, we see that before Jesus is in front of Pilate, there's this side conversation with the priests and Pilate as they're handing over Jesus. And the first question Pilate asks to the priests is, what did he do? They answer, well, we wouldn't bring you an innocent man. They don't reveal to them what the charges are, but in a roundabout way of saying, we're guilt he's guilty, we're just not sure of what. And this is where Pilate is starting to understand. You see through the story, he knows that the priests are just working in their own self-interest to bring Jesus to them. And that's just, why don't you go judge them by your own laws? And this is where it's truly revealed to Pilate and to all of us that the priest said, essentially, well, we can't because we want him dead, and only you can do that for us. So Pilate's working his best now to understand who Jesus is and what he did, and he asks probably the most important question that he could have in this moment to kind of to evaluate the whole situation. One is, did he actually do something that deserves death, according to the laws of the priests? Or two, is this a revolutionary is this a guy that's bent on sedition, that he wants to now secede from Rome and, and, and bring this independence uh, for the Jews, which everyone is kind of clamoring about? So he asks them the question in verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? And this is a way of getting an answer to both of those things. Now, it may not be that Pilate had his mind wrapped around who Jesus really was in this moment, but you can almost sense a bit of emphasis on you as he's looking at this man who doesn't have much power or influence or money. He doesn't have a band of soldiers. He's sitting there with his hands bound before him, and it's almost, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus, so lowly in nature and humble and silent? But it was actually in itself a pretty profound question, and with it came a very profound answer from Jesus. He said, you have said so. Or in another way, that's your way of putting it. And we see here in the same way that Jesus is choosing his words very carefully. He's not throwing any of them away. He's making all of them count, and he's using these words to point Pilate and, and all of us to the truth of who Jesus is. And it's a moment where a simple yes or no could be misleading to this question, because because really, Pilate is asking this, are you the king of the Jews, or are you a revolutionary that wants to fight for these Jews? Yes would mean that Jesus would respond to that question and say, yes, I'm an earthly king, but that's not who he was. No would say, no, I'm not a king at all. And so instead, he actually offers a, a much longer answer that we don't see here in the book of Matthew, but it actually it's spelled out in the book of John. John 18, verse 33, we pick up in the same spot where Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And, and Jesus says, is that your own idea 
or did others talk to you about me? We understand here is that Jesus is, is that the way you think of me or is that the way others think about me? Because in reality, none of that matters. And it doesn't change who Jesus is and what kind of came, that what kind of king he came to be. And essentially, he's asking, if you really knew me, you wouldn't be asking me that. Verse 36 of John 18, Jesus continues to explain that my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest for by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Now Jesus is explaining what he is the king of. It's not of earthly things. It's not of borders. It's not of boundaries. It's not of a certain people. Jesus came as a king of a different kingdom. And it's hard for Pilate to wrap his mind around this, I'm sure. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around that many times. We talked about that last week as, as Peter was fighting off that priest from the temple. Jesus essentially said, put your sword down. That's not our battle. That's not my kingdom. And it's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are we fighting the right battle? Do we understand the kingdom of God? Jesus is not the king of a people or a place. He is the Lord over all creation, over all people. And his kingdom is not built in this world. It's built in the hearts of believers. That's our battle in that kingdom. And he said, if this were really my kingdom, I would have had my disciples coming to fight for me then. I'd have them come to fight for me now. But that's not the battle I came to fight. The battle he came to fight was on the cross for us. He explains also in, in that final part to, the, to answer the question, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate understands that he's a king in verse 37 of John 18, but Jesus answered that you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born to this world was to tes testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And really what he's saying is I'm not just a king, I'm the king. I'm the true king, and I come to rule in truth. I came to this earth to be truth and to reveal truth to people. And there's this moment that Pilate now looks Jesus into the eye, and in the most cynical way, he says, what is truth? I think that's the question we all have to answer. Who is the true king? What is the true kingdom? What is the purpose of our lives and the purpose of the church that Jesus has created? And we're going to talk more about Pilate in a moment and his choices, but it's clear that he doesn't understand truth, that he's choosing a different path and making his own choices in this. But the true statement that Jesus makes all of this is that once again, he chooses to remain silent in the face of injustice. And as Pilate is trying to work out all these charges and he's starting to understand that Jesus is an innocent man, he says, aren't you going to even respond to the things that these priests are saying against you? But he made no reply to great amazement of the governor. He did not fight. This was not his battle and he fulfilled the scriptures, the prophecies of old of Isaiah again we talked about this last week, Isaiah 53, 7, that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus had nothing to prove. He had nothing to fight here. There is no earthly battle that would advance his kingdom at this point. All that mattered is that he went to the cross. He knew that this was his purpose. And it shows here that Jesus was in control of these proceedings. He was not on trial. Really, the ones who were on trial were the priests, was Pilate, was the people, or all who would read this story from here on out. Do you believe that Jesus is the king he came to be? And are you willing to submit to his lordship? Well, the choice of Pilate was no. He didn't, unfortunately. And in some ways, I kind of feel for Pilate through this, which is interesting to say, because he was... Notary, uh, he had the notoriety of this ruthless man, of this, this governor who, who ruled over these people. But I know that he's working out in his head that Jesus might be who he says he is. And he has total control, Pilate does, as governor of this precinct, and yet he chooses not to do the right thing. Pilate shed his authority. And we see here is that it was the governor's custom at the festival or at Passover to release a, a prisoner chosen by the crowd. This was all Pilate's doing. Nobody forced him to do this. This is something he initiated and something he continues. But now the people had expected it year after year. And really this was his way of appearing gracious, but he's still really in control from top to bottom. And though he had a responsibility for justice in this situation, Pilate chose his own self-interest instead. Now, what we know is that the crowds weren't there when he had these initial conversations with Jesus and he's trying to work this out. But now, as he's maybe understanding that Jesus is innocent, the crowds are starting to gather that we read in verse 17. And this might be Pilate's way of saying, ah, I don't have to make the difficult decision here. I'll let the crowd do it for me. He saw this as an opportunity. And he said, I'm going to give the crowd two choices. Barabbas, the violent criminal, or Jesus, who they call the Messiah. Should be a pretty easy choice, right? Now I think this is a moment where he gives the responsibility to the crowd, assuming they're going to choose Jesus, the Messiah, to be set free. But this is a move that kind of backfires on him. We have to understand who this Barabbas guy is. We don't know a ton about him, but we know that he was famous among the people. That he was, he was seen as a robber. In the book of Mark, we understand that he committed murder in his crimes. And it was likely that Barabbas was a revolutionary. We also find out in this text, especially in later manuscripts, is that Barabbas was his last name. His first name was probably Jesus. So we have one Jesus or the other. And essentially what he's saying is, do you want this Jesus, Barabbas, the murderous revolutionary, or do you want Jesus, the Messiah, the silent and innocent man? Isn't that a question we always have to answer for ourselves too? Which Jesus do you want? The fake one or the real one? Well, this is where we see that there's a lot happening at this moment, that the priests and the elders were going around and influencing the crowd. 
And we know that, that this is that moment that it was getting out of control for Pilate, that he thought he was being clever, but it was backfiring. And now only in the book of Matthew we see this pretty amazing moment where Pilate's wife had a dream, and it appears that God was speaking to her. And in this culture, dreams had great importance. They still do today, and that's why we see God speaking to a lot of Muslim believers in, in dreams and visions. So this carried a lot of weight coming to Pilate, where he got a message from his wife that said, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now this is all of the ammunition Pilate needed to know that Jesus was, in fact, innocent. This heightened the awareness, for sure, of Jesus' legal innocence. But he did not act on it. So this dream and his response is that though he had all authority to free Jesus, he gave the authority to the people. And this was from top to bottom Pilate's choice. He could have done what was right, but instead he chose passivity. And failure to do what is right is as much of a sin as doing what is wrong. He blew his opportunity, and he was, in the end, though he tried to be, lift his responsibility for this death, he was responsible for the death of Jesus. But then we also see the choice of the people who were given, in this way, the authority from the governor to make this choice. And he asks, what shall I do with Jesus called the Messiah? This is after they chose to release Barabbas, the criminal. And they all answered in unison, crucify him. We see that this really happened after there was some influence coming from the priests and the elders. And, and the first choice is that these, this crowd chose to follow this influence. And that's something we have to fight all the time, is we're going to have a lot of people telling us, a lot of very influential voices in our culture, telling us incorrect and false things about Jesus. We have to choose to have us, but in a wholesale agreement, they cheered for the death and the crucifixion of Jesus. And this should show to us the power of the influence of these priests and these elders. Because the Jewish people abhorred the thought of crucifixion. This was a terrible death that only the Romans would institute. It was seen as cruel and unusual punishment, even for the worst of people. And now this innocent man, of which there is no real charge, the people are cheering for him to hang on a cross. Why? Because they let the influential voices of the culture, of, of these people who they thought they revered, they let them sway their minds and their hearts. This is where we see one last attempt from Pilate to correct what's going wrong in verse 23. He says, why do you want this man crucified? What crime has he committed? And yet they shouted all the louder, crucify him. The crowd chose to spare Barabbas and to send Jesus to the cross. It's really in making no decision that Pilate made the decision to allow the crowds to crucify Jesus. It was a shared responsibility here. And Pilate attempted to exonerate himself. He, only in this gospel do you see that he literally washed his hands in front of the people and said, I am free from this. I am innocent of this man's blood. 
It's your responsibility. Now, if you ever heard the expression washing your hands of this, this is actually where it comes from. Is this custom of the Jews would often just wash their hands as a way of showing their innocence. But this really was just Pilate's attempt to uh, Pilate's attempt to cure his own conscience in the matter. He knew that he had the authority to, to make him go free. But the crowd here amazingly accepts responsibility for the death, and they say something somewhat profound that maybe they don't understand what it is they're saying in verse 25. That all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. What they're saying is, yes, it's because of us and our children that this man, Jesus, the Messiah, is dying. It's our doing. They maybe didn't understand that. And this is where you understand, maybe you think of Jesus who's listening to the crowd say that and is like, yes, that is why I came to die. It's for you and your children. And for all of us here, Jesus went to the cross because of our sin. It's essentially our responsibility that he died. But Jesus did so willingly. And this is where it tells us a lot about Jesus, that he continued to that cross that that was the battle he was fighting for us, that he did it willingly out of love to take upon himself the penalty, which is death, of our sin, even for those who did not understand it. Jesus died for all of them and their children. He died for Pilate. He died for the priests. He died for those who would accept him, who would believe in him, who would have faith in him, and who would love him. Those are exactly the people that Jesus came to die for. That's where we have the choice, which is to accept that, accept Jesus, or to reject him for any number of reasons. The only two choices we have in the matter. So as we conclude today, I really just want to ask a series of questions, just, just as we think about the application of this. And the first is, are you trusting in God? Are you trusting his plan for your life, for this, this church, this kingdom of his? Or are you trusting a popular opinion in your own plans and expectations? See, if the people had followed the, if Jesus had followed the plans of the people, he would have gone in, he would have marched in, he could have called down these heavenly armies and overthrown the Roman government without a bead of sweat. He would have sat on that throne, but uh, the earthly throne of Jerusalem, but not a single soul would have been saved. Had he never gone to the cross, he never would have fought the true battle of the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, which is for our souls. That's why he came, and now that's our fight, is for the souls of others. It doesn't always make sense. It didn't make sense for them. At times, it doesn't make sense for us. But when we look back and ask, what happened? It's often because we weren't trusting him. We weren't trusting his plan, and we're leaning only on ourselves and our own understanding. So you have to ask yourself, are you putting the kingdom first in your life, the true kingdom of Christ? Are you putting it first in your life, or are you working for something else? Are you fighting the wrong battles? Are you fighting the right battles, but in the wrong way? Which kingdom has your ultimate allegiance? And it reminds me of the words we just sang this morning on that same topic. 
that we pray to God, heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen, because that's where his kingdom lives. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause as I walk from earth into eternity. Are you fighting the eternal battles? Are you focused on the things of heaven and of eternity? Are you not being conformed by the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ? The last part is to think about the influence you do have. All of us have different levels in some way, but we all have influence. We're all sharing something in our lives and are using your influence to bring people to Jesus, the true Jesus, or to turn them away from him. There are many in this world who do not know Jesus, the, the real Jesus. He has a plan and a purpose for all of our lives above anything we could ask for or imagine. If you know Jesus, if you know the real Jesus, let your life, your voice, and your influence be used to point people to him. Because Jesus went to the cross for you. He went to the cross for all the people in the world, for all who would believe. And all we must do is cry the same thing they did on Palm Sunday morning. Save us. Save us. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our sins because Jesus is the only one who can do that. Let's pray together as we close. Lord, we thank you for just the richness and the fullness of your story that even though there were so many that probably misunderstood, you went anyway. We think about Palm Sunday and we know in, in some accounts it, it shows that you, you wept over Jerusalem as you entered, probably knowing there are many who would never understand, but God, you went anyway. And so forgive us, Lord, for the times we don't understand and reveal to us all the ways of your kingdom, the, the true uh, battles we are to fight. And God, I just pray for all of those who don't know you that we can be a beacon, that we can be lights in this world as we shine your light among all men. So God, I just pray now, especially as we close in, Good Friday and Easter this weekend as we think about your death and the glories of your resurrection. God, may it change us and may it change the world all through your power. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.